Listening to the seasoned migrant, a show about culture, migration, and ideas, and how these have shaped our understanding of the world. I'm Yusuf Amanullah, and I'm Leonard Bout. And on this episode, we're talking about national heroes, teaching symbols of identity, legitimacy, and oppression through school curriculums. So, for the longest time, we've taken our national heroes as given. For example, you know, take a look at Winston Churchill. We know him as the man who defeated the Nazis and uh, protected the freedom of Europe. But recently, the, the other side of Churchill has come to light, which is a racist side because he basically allowed a famine. And so with this debate, with this discussion, there's been a huge emphasis on reevaluating who we remember, how we remember them and and why. And I think it's you know it's become quite a contentious discussion precisely because these individuals have been embedded so much into what it means to be from a particular place, but if we're looking at any individual in history, I think modern historians are quite good at looking at characters from older sides and seeing them as complex people, but Somehow those best practices get thrown out the window when we're talking about people that we're, as you said, taking for granted as people that we should revere as part of our national stories. And I think looking at what functions these national heroes have played and what kind of message they give out, I think these are all really important discussions to be having, especially when we have these individuals that are supposedly central to our understanding of ourselves. And so today we'll be looking at three different cases of how these national heroes have been used by countries. So we're starting off with Hong Kong's education system. And we're talking in particular about Hong Kong under British rule between 1945 and 1997. And the reason this context is very cool to understand how different narratives get constructed in curriculums is because they happen to have two history subjects being taught side by side. On the one hand, they had Chinese history with its own names and own narratives of the Chinese nation. And on the other hand, students were being taught history in the general sense with very different aims. And the contrast between these two curriculums really allow us to unpick how different approaches to teaching history leads to very different outcomes. Right. And so I think it's important to understand why Chinese history even just came about. And it's really because during Britain's rule in Hong Kong, 
people felt as though their identity and their connection with China was under threat and slowly diminishing. And that was particularly because English-speaking schools were much more popular than Cantonese-speaking schools. And so there was this resistance and, and opposition in Hong Kong. And because of that, Britain had to almost allow the introduction of Chinese history in curriculums as a way to subdue people, but also give them an opportunity to retain their national identity. And it kind of backfired because the actual teaching of Chinese history became so important as a symbol of Hong Kong identity that when the British tried to package uh, it in as a third of this new social studies subject that they wanted to introduce in the 70s, um, there was a huge amount of resistance. Like the Brits had to back down immediately. It was so fragile an issue and it almost could have delegitimized their colonial rule. And instead, the Brits had to introduce an entirely new subject, which was history. And it wasn't just about the content where these two subjects differed. They were entirely differently structured. So we have history, the general kind, trying to equip students to become critical thinkers. And of course, there were some colonial backgrounds to the subjects, you know, the kind of time periods that were being studied and, and the focus and so on. But it was all about, you know, building up this skill of critical thinking. And on the other hand, we had the Curriculum Development Committee mandating that Chinese history as a subject should be nurturing students' good conduct through the study of historical figures. And that's a quote from one of the reports. And while we have history in the general sense, looking at historical periods in depth and looking at primary sources, scrutinizing them to come up with arguments, and that, that was what it was all about, you know? But with Chinese history, it was about really pushing for this idea of the Chinese nation and the Chinese identity for, for people in Hong Kong. So instead of focusing on single periods, they wanted people to be aware of the entire history of China, which meant looking at something like 4,000 years of history. And so it was much less about arguments and more about memorizing facts and history. And a lot of that history was told through the lens of great men. So for example, Lin Zezu was the figure through which students learned about, and I'm quoting again here from the CDC, they learned about serving the country wholeheartedly and protecting the interests of the national people. And I think it's important to recognize that it wasn't just about exaggerating these attributes of these great heroes, but it was also about contrasting them against historical figures from other places in the world. So even in the case of Lin Zezu, his heroic conduct was compared to and contrasted with the villainous and evil behavior of Captain Elliot, his British rival. And this contrasting didn't just come in the content of history textbooks, but even in the way that these two subjects were taught insofar as history was taught in English while Chinese history was taught in Cantonese, both at the school level and university. And so all these differences between history and Chinese history were used as a way to foster this stronger 
Chinese identity in students and and the future generation. And what I find really interesting, a bit like what you said earlier, is that this division of who teaches what is still there even at university level. You would have thought that you know perhaps it was just the younger students in the schools getting these different narratives, but even at university level. For example, at the University of Hong Kong, it's not their history faculty that's teaching Chinese history. It's actually the Chinese faculty that is supposed to be dealing with language and cultural studies, but they still take that Chinese history on as part of their mandate of teaching. And well, throughout Hong Kong's education system, you have these divided narratives and approaches to the teaching of history that has been really intentional and fostered this idea of nationhood for people in Hong Kong. And after the break, we'll be looking at one national hero in particular, Muhammad Ali Jinnah in Pakistan. So we've been looking at Hong Kong, where the case of national curriculums and the message they had for them was fairly stable. It was the same identity and the same idea of nationhood being promoted by authorities to Hong Kong students. But now we're turning on to Pakistan, where the symbol of Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who was the the founding father of the nation, that symbol changed so much throughout time. And the changes had to do with adapting his vision and his legacy to different times. It had to do with political agendas and how they were using the symbolic currency of of Jinnah's name to suit different ideas of the country. And to talk to us about this really fascinating topic is Musti Kamal. He's a student at the University of Oxford and also the director and founder of the DIL Internship Project, which connects students and young professionals from across the world to bring their skills and talent to Pakistan. He's here today to talk to us about what he's been researching for the last couple of months, which is the role of Islam in Pakistani politics. So Musti, thank you for coming on to our show. I was particularly excited to talk with you about this topic because as Pakistanis, I think whenever we talk about Jinnah, it's with a lot of pride and patriotism. At the end of the day, this is a man who fought against the British Raj along with his compatriots in the All Indian Muslim League for a vision of Pakistan to be a democratic state with a Muslim majority to house the Muslim minority of India. And nowadays, whenever we do talk about Jinnah, it's through the lens of this idealized character of Qadiyazm or the great leader. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on what Jinnah's legacy is today. Yeah, sure. So I completely agree. What's interesting about uh, going to Pakistan is that Jinnah is a sort of omnipresent figure. Whatever kind of social strata, whatever kind of economic class or whatever profession you go into, the one uniting figure for almost all Pakistanis is Jinnah. And what I what I think that leads us to understand is that Jinnah no longer exists as kind of a historically accurate figure. It's more about what people have projected onto him. So, for example, there is a historic Jinnah who kind of went through the education system in the UK, went to Lincoln's Inn, trained as a barrister and had very Western sensibilities throughout his life. But also there are now 200 million Jinnahs in the conceptions of Pakistanis who have kind of painted their own images and their own desires and ambitions about Pakistan onto him. 
So for example, just to give you a, a few examples of the hand, the clerical class of Pakistan has viewed Jinnah as this sort of savior for Islam who has kind of forged this Islamic country out of um, India, which was obviously dominated by a Hindu majority population. And for them, he's the person who's created this Muslim haven. Equally for pseudo-liberals or liberals in Lahore, Jinnah was the person who created this secular haven away from the Hindu-dominated India, and they've kind of painted their own version of Pakistan onto him. And so Jinnah is a unifying thread in a country where there aren't many unifying threads. And there are so many ways that you could divide Pakistan, whether it's by language, by economic class, by ethnicity, by region. But the one thing that has kind of persevered throughout that division is the figure of Jinnah. But unfortunately, that doesn't mean that we have a unified kind of corpus of Pakistanis behind Jinnah. It's more the case that Jinnah represents so many different things to so many people that there's always a reference point back saying that, oh, Jinnah would have wanted this for Pakistan or Jinnah would have wanted that. And it's interesting that even so many years, almost 80 years after the foundation of Pakistan, he is still probably the only unanimously agreed upon focal point for the energies of politicians, religious clerics or whoever you want to to name it. And his kind of shadow is long but ill-defined within Pakistan. So Musi, we've got these these different accounts of, of who Jinnah was, and we know that one of the most influential ideas of Jinnah is this idea of him as a man that emphasizes his Islamic qualities and his Islamic character, and then also takes that to mean that his intention for the country was one of a, a Pakistan that sees religion and sees Islam as a big part of its identity. Could you tell us a bit about the period of the 1970s and 1980s, particularly with Premier Ziaul Haq and how he put forward this idea of, of Jinnah and how it came to be? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one thing that I, that I would say is that Jinnah has been used as ammunition by so many different people that it's almost, like I said, it's completely lost what you originally wanted. But Ziaul Haq was someone who very firmly uh, put his foot on the ground and said that Jinnah created this Islamic nation and it's our duty to put forward uh, this very Islamic conception of what it means to be Pakistani. Um, I would say that he's not unique in this regard because a lot of um, a lot of politicians and Pakistani prime ministers have sort of understood the power and the mobilizing volition behind something like Islam and religion. Because at the end of the day, even today, I'm not, I'm not sure about the exact statistics, but I believe it's in the high 80s where people identify as Muslims before being Pakistani. And that's something that politicians have understood. And no matter what their inclinations are, they've tried to, to, tried to use it. Now, Ziaul Haq was very interesting because he kind of um, didn't only pay lip service to a lot of the constitutional elements which uh, led to people believing that there was an Islamic nation. But many people like, for example, Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto or the First Constituent Assembly didn't actually act on a lot of those things. So, for example, the Council of Islamic Ideology was something that had been present since the early 1970s, but it was something that was only activated by Ziaul Haq because he actually wanted there to be a body that checked the legislation going through Parliament and to see its Islamic or its Muslim flavour. Now, Ziaul Haq is credited with this Islamization, and is there are lots of people who pre, uh, who presume that that is actually the turning point for Pakistan in terms of its downhill or its kind of descent from the global stage or a regionally strong player into becoming this kind of backwater where terrorists have free reign. 
I think that's a very simplistic way of looking at it, but there's no doubt about it that Ziaul Haq played a very important role in kind of activating dormant elements of Islamization within Pakistan. And I would say mo- most influentially, he was able to integrate that mindset into a large sum of the population. A large swathe of the pop- Pakistani population actually didn't disagree with Ziaul Haq at the time. And that's, I think, his most powerful legacy. It wasn't the case that he was a despotic dictator acting in complete isolation. His ideas had a lot of buy-in. And even now, I would say that there are lots of people, whether they're in Islamic parties like the Jamaat-e-Islami or slightly more conservative elements of mainstream political parties, who don't view him with the same disdain that perhaps others in liberal circles do, and probably view some of his changes as much needed for a wayward or a distracted Pakistani society. So, as you mentioned, Jinnah has always been used as this political vehicle, um, past and present, for various agendas of various politicians. But I wanted to get an understanding of how these ideas of Jinnah and the Qaid um, and and Qaid Azam have been filtered down into popular consciousness and the general public. So I, I think that's a difficult question, but what you have to remember is that J- there, it's no coincidence that Jinnah has become this kind of unifying figure for so many different strands of the Pakistani population because of how little common ground there is between very different groups within Pakistan. So, for example, when Pakistan was made, many millions of migrants actually came over from India with a different language, one of which is uh, with different languages, sorry, one of which was Urdu, uh, with different experiences, with different cultural sensibilities. Even within Pakistan, you have regions which have not much really in common. For example, Sindh and Balochistan and Punjab don't really share many cultural traditions. You have very different, um, uh, you have even different conception of what it means to be Muslim. So even Islam couldn't have been the unifying factor. And so having this symbolic figure as kind of the gateway to Pakistan and then painting your own ambitions and your own desires onto him was a very convenient way of people persuading their own followers and themselves, actually, that Pakistan was intended to be the way that they wanted it because Jinnah wanted it that way. And so I think that's why he's a very powerful vehicle. I would say it's interesting the way he's used because he ceases, like I said, to be a historical figure and he's more of a rhetorical device. So whenever you hear Imran Khan or wherever you hear politicians using Jinnah within a speech, it's almost inconsequential what he said at the end of the day. It's more that he is used to further their own ideas. Now, what's interesting is that Jinnah actually probably led to this situation himself because he was a politician at the end of the day. And what's um, very easy to forget is that he also had to play the gallery and he also had to accommodate for very different political interests. So it's very true. If you take transcripts of some of his speeches given to liberal circles in Bombay versus the ones that he would have given in the Northwest Frontier province, To one, he says that, yes, Pakistan is going to be a secular democracy, probably resembling the French parliamentary or presidential system. Whereas when he went to the NWFP, the Northwest Frontier province, he was talking about Sharia is the one law, Islamic rule will take place. And so to get his Pakistan achieved, he did play to different audiences. And I think that allowed politicians of later years, like Ziaul Haq, to have the resources available to them to construct their own narratives about Jinnah. And of course, some of them didn't actually give him that importance. For example, Ayub Khan 
refused to commission a biography about Jenner in, I believe, the early 1960s because he was running against his sister in the election. And so the varying ways in which people have dealt with Jinnah's legacy has always laid um, or linked to what they want Pakistan to look like, uh, even if that means ignoring his legacy in some instances. And when we're looking at someone that is growing up in Pakistan, when would be the time that this idea of Jinnah gets planted in their minds? Is it about schooling or about oral history or about something else entirely? So because Pakistan is such an ill-defined idea, it never really had set parameters. Like, for example, if you ask someone in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, 70s, whatever, what Pakistan is, you would again get 200 million different versions of the answer. And so because of that lack of certainty, you have to be buttressed into one kind of unifying figure, like I said. And so I would say Jinnah's presence is looming throughout every stage of someone's life. For example, cultural or national days are soporphoric with his images, everything is kind of saturated with his speeches, his quotes, even if they're articulating very different points. And he essentially allowed people to have the resources to kind of construct their own narratives. But in terms of the education system, I think the way that history is taught, and unfortunately, I think this is symptomatic of both Indian, Pakistani, and probably a lot more curriculums, but the way Jinnah is portrayed becomes a political point. Because for example, it would be very um, difficult for a country like Pakistan to present a very objective way in which, or describe Jinnah in a very objective way. Because if you allow or accommodate the weaknesses of Jinnah, essentially what you're doing is highlighting the frailties of the Pakistani idea, which I don't think many politicians would be eager to do. And similarly, in India, if you were to highlight some of the merits, which there were, of course, many of Jinnah, it would probably be counterintuitive because India was founded or India continued to exist under the very premise that Jinnah's separatist ambitions were antithetical to the kind of secular plural democracy that they wanted. And so whatever way you look at it, whether it's through the curriculum or through politics or through national events, Jinnah's legacy has essentially been hijacked to further particular points of view. And I I, I think the curriculum in Pakistan is no different. And so Musti, as we're coming towards the end of this interview, I wanted to get an idea of what your view of Jinnah is, like what your thoughts are of him as a politician in the 1940s and what his legacy is today. So Jinnah, for me, there are so many different angles and different ways you can approach any historical figure. For example, his political legacy is very different from his religious legacy, etc. So I think that question is very difficult. But from a very simple point of view, I think Jinnah for what he achieved in the context in which he achieved it, it's outstanding <laughs> in terms of if you wanted to give him a score out of having a political aim and whether he achieved it or not. I don't think there are many figures in history who would compare. And of course, any Pakistani or any person who studied this history will be familiar with the Stanley Walport quote. Who's, he said that few individuals significantly alter the course of history, fewer still modify the map of the world, and hardly anyone can be credited with creating a nation state. Muhammad Ali Jinnah did all three. So I think his impact on geopolitics and regional politics was obviously enormous, and you can't take that away from him. And many of those came from personal qualities. So I think there was, I think the wife of Nehru actually described the fact that if the Muslim League had 100 Gandhis, they would not have achieved Pakistan. Whereas if the Indian National Congress had one Jinnah, then India would have never divided. And so he was a great, a man of great personal quality, 
And so from that point of view, you have to give him skill of not navigating not only uh, an imperial system in which he was, of course, not British, he was an Indian subject. And to, to kind of climb that mountain was one thing, but also to, to kind of navigate Hindu-dominated politics, which he began to understand and diagnose, whether it was Nehru or Gandhi. He was never kind of viewed as the primary fiddle. So to navigate that and achieve Pakistan, I think you have to give him 11 out of 10 for that. Having said that, do I think that he laid the foundations for a successful country? That's a much trickier question because I'm sure a lot of pe people are familiar with the argument that, oh, if Jinnah had lived five years or 10 years more like Nehru, Pakistan would have been successful. I think, unfortunately, that may not have been the case. And I think Jinnah's legacy is able to be so pure and so valorized, partly because he didn't get to see what Pakistan became and partly because he didn't oversee it. And what I mean by that is to get and achieve what he wanted, to get Pakistan achieved, he had to sort of unleash a Pandora's box of a lot of forces, whether they were religious or feudal, that unfortunately still cripple the country today. And so, yes, I give him 11 out of 10, like I said, to achieve in achieving Pakistan. But did he lay the foundations for a successful and prosperous country? I think maybe the opposite. He actually left a legacy which was very hard for people to uh, maintain in the way that he did. And it was bound to come out and uh, essentially ruin many things that he had hoped would not transpire. So he's a complicated figure, a, a man of great interest for me. I think that you can um, be interested in Jinnah as much as you are interested in Pakistan's history because he is so influential, but he has a very complicated legacy. Thank you so much, Musti, for being with us today. I can't think of a better example than, than Jinnah to see really how a symbol of national pride can change meaning throughout time and, and be used by politicians and by people in power to suit new narratives in the country. So thank you so much for sharing all those insights from your research with us. After the break, we'll be looking at the case of South Africa and looking at how national heroes and their construction have been used to maintain systems of oppression in the country. So we've looked at how national heroes can be used to instill a sense of national pride. We've also seen how a particular national hero can be used in so many different ways to promote various agendas. And now we're looking at how national heroes can be constructed to contribute to systems of oppression. And the way that we're going to look at this is through the lens of South Africa. So pre-1996, the South African history curriculum placed a huge emphasis on the story of the Great Trek. And it was because this was seen as the founding story of the nation. So the Great Trek follows this group of four trekkers who were Afrikaners or white, predominantly Dutch settlers. And basically, there was this massive exodus of the four trekkers from Cape Colony in the 1830s because they were trying to escape the British colonial administration. And so when the story is portrayed, it's portrayed as this triumph of the Afrikaners over the British. And then you have this other dimension where basically 
the four trekkers stumble across these lands that were there for the taking and the only people in their way was the native black population. And so there's this other element of the triumph of white over black. And so in the 1930s, in the 100th year anniversary of the Great Trek, the story came back into popular consciousness. And it came back with this force to the point where artists started depicting the four checkers in these heroic poses. And there was this big public monument unveiled in Pretoria in 1949. And even an Afrikaner youth movement started in order to instill four trekker values. And the important point to dwell on in this story is this idea of the triumph of the white man over the black man. And it's important because it contributed to and, and reflected the system of apartheid in South Africa at the time. We have the system of institutionalized racism that ensured that the white minority population was able to dominate and oppress black people in South Africa. And it all started in 1948 when the National Party came to power and it passed law after law that ensured that black people had nowhere near the same civil or political rights as, as white people in the country. We're talking racial divisions in things like water fountains, toilets, and going all the way to schools and neighborhoods to the point where black people were even forcibly evicted and stripped of their citizenship in South Africa because of the system. And one of the ways in which the state ensured that this narrative and this domination was able to take place was through the education system in the country. Right. So education was used in two ways. So the first way being the story of the Great Trek and four trekkers defeating uh, the local black natives, which pushed this narrative of white triumphing over black. And then you also have the Bantu Education Act of 1953. And this was an extremely racist and explicitly racist plan for black education to the point where critics were calling it a schooling for servitude. And I don't think you can really understand the intention of the Nationalist Party until you read the quotation from the Minister of Native Affairs, who said, the school must equip the Bantu to meet the demands of the economic life that South Africa will impose on them. There is no place for him in the European community above certain forms of labor. So you have the situation where black children are denied both subjects that could help them enhance their uh, skill set in order to get you know, better jobs and, and a better economic status, but also resources. In the 1970s, the state spent 10 times more per child on education of white children than black. And so the education system in South Africa became one of the focal points of the apartheid system. And because of that, it received so much opposition and resistance from the black population in the country. We're talking things like refusing to attend school, to food boycotts, to parent-teacher protests. And all of the sentiment ignited in 1976 when the government tried to replace English instruction in schools with Afrikaans instead. And this was a very big deal because Afrikaans was the language of the colonizer of, of the white minority in the country. And more than that, knowing English 
gave access to black people in the country to certain jobs that they otherwise wouldn't have access to knowing just Afrikaans. So all of that combined led to the Soweto uprising in 1976, where around 10 to 20,000 people took part in this protest, opposing these reforms by the government. And the government responded by sending in the police and shooting and killing hundreds of these protesters. And this moment in the resistance against education received so much attention domestically and internationally that it became a turning point for resistance against apartheid. And so after the 1976 protest in Soweto, there was this surge in student resistance throughout the 80s. And this didn't just come in the form of further protests, but also particularly in Cape Town, there were these local groups that would develop alternative curriculums for black children. And the topics included in these curriculums would be the history of black struggle, the system of inferior education, the exploitation of black workers, basically trying to educate uh, black children on matters that were really pertinent to the time in South Africa. And one thing that I found particularly interesting was that each day before the school session began, there was this critical analysis uh, that was done of the latest newspaper articles on the school boycotts. And so these curriculums were responding to this educational system that firstly was setting up black people to fail in job markets in South Africa, and secondly was promoting this idea of the triumph of the white man over the black man being the founding myth of the nation. And after 1976, after all these waves of protests, the government actually did very little to change the system of education. There were some concessions made because there was so much pressure from abroad. For example, they did actually drop the reform of introducing Africans, so it was kept as English instead. But this was the only thing. The, the rest of the changes were just symbolic. The Bantu education department that oversaw the, the racist educational system was renamed to Department of Education and Training just because the word Bantu has such an offensive legacy, they wanted to step away from it. But the government set up this commission to investigate the potential response to the educational crisis. And their main recommendation, which was actually a positive one, was to put all education, e.g. the education of both white and black people together under one department. But the government had such an unshakable commitment to apartheid in education that they even refused this single positive recommendation from their own commission. And well, we saw in the beginning how people like Lin Zhu in Hong Kong were being used as these figures by being woven into narratives of nation and identity. And we then moved on to Muhammad Ali Jinnah that became a symbol with his own weight. It wasn't just woven into narratives, but the symbol of the national hero in itself through Jinnah was the narrative in itself that changed throughout time. But then in the case of South Africa, we have this really elusive concept of the four trackers that actually don't relate to any particular person. And this is the most removed we are from having the symbol, not really talk about a person in particular, but just talk about this concept of the founders of the nation. And perhaps this is what made it most malleable and, and made it such a oppressive device because it didn't actually relate to anything, just a racist idea that was being used to promote and promulgate the system of apartheid.
So by looking at Hong Kong, Pakistan, and South Africa, you realize that actually there is a function to national heroes, be it to instill a sense of national identity, to push for a political agenda of the time, or to oppress a certain people. And because of the function that national heroes play and the agendas behind them, certain bits of history are conveniently neglected or uh, changed to suit the narrative of the day. I mean, I think when you read and understand these different case studies, you realize that there are people of the past and then there's the idea of these people. And sometimes the idea gets further and further removed from the person and people themselves. And so at that point, it's really important that we have these debates of who we remember and how we choose to remember them. Thank you so much for listening to the episode and making it this far. We've got many more exciting stories coming up in future episodes and on our Instagram page at seasoned.migrant. If you have any thoughts, any comments or any ideas for future topics, please send us a message. Also, we love feedback, so let us know what you loved and how we could improve. You've been listening to the Seasoned Migrant Podcast. We'll be back next week. Goodbye.